Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we open God's Word to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This morning we're giving our attention to verses 13 and following. Now last, last Lord's Day, during our first study of Acts 15, we established a fact that somewhat, though somewhat counterintuitive, proves true, and that is that controversy is never fun. But the good kind of controversy can, over time, yield great blessings. As Machen said, quote, out of good controversy, there comes the salvation of souls. The point being that sometimes it takes a fierce controversy to sharpen essential doctrines and strengthen critical convictions. Acts 15, which is known as the Jerusalem Council, recounts how the apostles and the elders of the early church in Jerusalem gathered in order to deal with a particular point of controversy of great, great importance that it is pointed out in verse 1, where we read, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, meaning the Gentiles in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the heart of the controversy and a summary of the entire controversy. False teaching was creeping into the church at Antioch. And as we already saw last Lord's Day, this controversy was an affront against five distinctive doctrines, two of which, which we saw last week. First, it was an attack against the sovereignty of God. Salvation is God's work alone, not the work of men or even a combination between God and men. God saves and he does so alone, apart from circumcision, apart from obedience to the law of Moses. By their teaching, the believing Pharisees that came from Jerusalem to Antioch were diminishing God's sovereign work in salvation. But this, as we saw last week, this controversy yielded the first blessing. And that is precisely that the foundational truth of God's sovereignty and salvation was applied. And Peter provided three specific examples of this truth in verses 7 through 9. God sovereignly chose him to be the first evangelist to the Gentiles, in verse 7. God sovereignly gave the Gentiles his Holy Spirit, verse 8. And third, God sovereignly cleansed the Gentiles' hearts. So from beginning to end, it was all God's work alone. But not only was this controversy that started in verse 1 an attack on the sovereignty of God, but secondly, it was also an attack on God's Grace, the grace of God, meaning God doesn't give his salvation to those who deserve it or who seek to better themselves. Rather, God saves the undeserving and the impotent, meaning those who know themselves unable to better themselves due to the reality of sin. Everyone in the world, whether Jew or Gentile, is saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed 
supremely in his death for us on the cross. To that work, nothing can be added, for it was a perfect work of substitution on the cross for us in which Jesus took the place of sinners. He died because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, he died. The Father paid those wages to his incarnate Son so that we could receive life in Jesus through faith. It is a complete work of redemption. Consequently, the second blessing that came out of this controversy was that this critical doctrine was sharpened. Grace is truly, truly free. It is truly free. The definitive conclusion is found in verse 11, where Peter said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not through what we do, but through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Thus, Peter finished his speech. And they defeated the attacks against God's sovereignty on one hand and God's grace on the other. Now is James's turn to speak in verses 13 and following. And he will address the third, the fourth, and the fifth points of controversy, along with the blessings that will come out of each one respectively. What are those? What are those points of controversy? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Let us consider the third blessing from the lips of James. As we do so, we will be able to discern the third point of controversy as well. Here's the third blessing. A biblical prophecy was remembered. So as they struggled with this debate, as they exchanged words, a biblical prophecy was remembered. What is that prophecy? God foretold Gentile inclusion. God foretold Gentile inclusion. Verses 13 through 18. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In other words, the teaching of the believing Pharisees who were pushing the Gentiles to, in Antioch to follow the law and become Jews through circumcision was also an affront against God's word, the word of God. Now, let's see this in more detail. After Paul and Barnabas has, had finished talking in verse 12, where they recounted for the third time the mighty works of God among the Gentiles. And after Peter was done speaking of God's sovereignty and grace in the salvation of the Gentiles, James, the brother of Jesus, begins his speech, and he goes back to the Old Testament and quotes from Amos chapter 9. Now, without losing your spot in Acts, so keep your, your finger there or something in there, Turn to Amos chapter 9. If you're using the blue Bibles, 
This is in page 770, 770. This is what James quotes. Now, the theme of Amos is the universal justice of God. No nation is able to escape his wrath. Justice is always applied. In fact, Amos has a reputation, right? He is the angry prophet, right? He is the angry prophet. And so Amos is always talking about the justice of God, the wrath of God. No nation will escape his justice. Now, the Jews, being the chosen people of God, were expecting the day of judgment upon the nations, which was known as the day of the Lord. But to their surprise, they themselves were going to be judged under the judge, just wrath of God for their unfaithfulness to him. So consider with me the first subtitle given to chapter 9 of Amos. My ESV says, the destruction of Israel. So in Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, speaks of God's severe judgment that would fall on his own people. The language, if you can follow along, is quite violent. In verse 1, God says, I will kill with the sword. In verse 2, if they dig, my hand shall take them. If they climb, I will bring them down. In verse 3, if they hide, I will search them out, etc., etc. Those are severe words, violent words, fearful words. But as it is always the case with God who is rich in mercy, there is always hope. Notice then the subtitle given above verse 11. My ESV says, the restoration of Israel. So first, the destruction of Israel, and then the restoration of Israel. Verses 11 and 12 of Amos 9 are the verses that James quotes during the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, approximately 700 years after they were originally spoken by Amos. And the reason for quoting them at this point is simple. James saw the prophecy of Amos as being fulfilled in their lifetime. Let's see how. Consider the word in Amos, the word tent or booth. can also be translated as tabernacle, like the American Standard Version does, the tabernacle of David. It is a reference to a meeting place, specifically the place where God and man can meet together. David is the one who originally asked God to build him a house or a temple, which explains the reference to David. Eventually, who built God a house? David's son, Solomon, built God a house. But in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, later on Solomon's temple, consider this insight, is going to blow your mind. Are you ready? In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were kept exclusively within the confines of Israel's religious life. Why? Well, because a physical temple made out of stones by human hands must be, must be bound to a specific geographical point. Is that quite the insight or what? It's mind-blowing. But that's important. That matters. According to the Abrahamic covenant, God himself said to Abraham, what? In you, all 
the families of the what? Israel? Of the earth will be blessed. God's plan from the beginning was not to be confined to a geographical location, but to be globally expanded. Notice Amos' prophecy in verse 12. David's tabernacle must be restored. Why? That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And what else? All the nations who are called by my name. Now go back to Acts chapter 15, verse 17, and see how James quotes it. The tent of David must be rebuilt and restored. Why? That the remnant of what? Mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In other words, the temple, the place where God and man can meet together, which was geographically contained to the land of Israel, needs to be globalized somehow. The tabernacle needs to become accessible to all the nations because that was the plan from the beginning. Why? Two reasons. First, as Stephen said in Acts 7, 48, right before he was stoned to death, the most high God does not dwell in houses made by what? By hence. Second, the people of God is not limited to one ethnic group, but goes into all the earth. As the prophecy says, the remnant of mankind and all the Gentiles. So James stands before the Jews and says, Brothers, do we believe God's word? Brothers, says James, consider what is happening before our very eyes, says James. Gentiles, People from all over the world are receiving the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, just like we have, as Peter said. What does that mean? For James and Peter, it meant this. The restoration of the tabernacle of David prophesied by Amos is happening in their lifetime before their very eyes. This is massive. How come? Because with the coming of Jesus, something better and something greater than the temple was here. That's what he said. The temple is now the body of Christ, the universal church where the Spirit of God dwells. Therefore, the coming of the Spirit upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 was the beginning stages of the restoration of David's, David's tabernacle announced by Amos in chapter 9. This is a better temple. It is made up with living stones, meaning with believers. And all because of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, God spoke, God has thus fulfilled. And here, brothers and sisters, we, we have reached a midpoint in our passage. I want you to notice something. The believing Jews, the Pharisees, were corrected and they were rebuked. Did you notice that? Through Peter and James in a threefold matter. So let's go back real quick. God is sovereign in salvation. Don't take anything away from it. That's what Peter said in verses 7 and 10. Second, all of salvation is by God's grace. Don't try to add anything to it. Verse 11. And from the beginning, James says, we have known what God has said. Don't forget anything about it. 
James said in verses 13 through 18. So the Jews have been rebuked. They have been corrected. But now, beginning in verse 19 and following, James will address the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and how they ought to respond to the Jews. Even though the Jews started it, the Gentiles could say that, right? We didn't start this, Peter. And James, James is like, no, 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 hold, 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 on, hold on a minute. You belong to the church. You have a play to part in this very important play. Please don't miss what we are about to dive into. Let us consider the fourth blessing coming out of this controversy. Oh, this is an important one. Fourth blessing. You, you need to know this one, okay? You need to, your mind needs to be attentive and your ears ready, your heart, all of it. Are you ready? Good. Just want to make sure you're ready. A crucial clarification was made. A crucial clarification was made. Here it is. Grace is not a license to sin. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, concluded. Verse 19 and 20. Please follow closely. Therefore, my judgment, says James, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Again, I believe both Peter and James spoke on behalf of the entire council. Their words were representative of the entire consensus reached by all. When it comes to James' conclusion, or as he calls it, my judgment, there are two main points that he's emphasizing and both having to do with the Gentiles primarily. I will highlight one first and then the other one in a moment. In verse 20, pay attention to this. James mentions four specific issues or vices, bad things. What are they? Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled, and blood. Remember, he's addressing these words to, to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Gentiles must abstain from all of these. How many? Four things. Now, that's confusing. Isn't it? It's a little confusing. At first sight, it sounds like James is telling the Gentiles to submit themselves to the law. Does it not? But wouldn't that contradict what Peter said in verse 11? It would if and only if James is actually referring to the law of Moses. It would be a contradiction for Peter to say we're saved by grace and then James to say, well, we're saved by submitting ourselves to the law of Moses. But he's not referring to the law of Moses. James is not. If he were speaking about the law of Moses, let me ask you this. Why didn't he mention lying, stealing, murder, etc.? Can the Gentiles engage in any of those? Can we? Because James didn't mention it, so I guess it's okay to lie, right? It's okay to steal. And... No. Of course not. The point was different. James... In those four things he mentions, he is giving a summary of paganism. Paganism. As Gentiles, many of these believers in Antioch had been associated with pagan practices and rituals, which are summed up in those four vices. 
You see, James is not saying submit to the law of Moses to be saved. Instead, he's saying forsake your paganism for the sake of the gospel. In essence, then, James is saying this. Grace, don't miss this, grace, though free, it transforms. You were pagan. You are no longer pagan. Leave your paganism behind. Now, therefore, those who were formerly engaged, says James, or who are presently engaged in any of these pagan rituals, they must stop. In other words, listen again. Don't think for a second that grace is permission for you to remain where grace found you. This really, really matters. Do you see it? I'm not trying to force anything in the text. This is truly a critical clarification because it is likely at least some of those Gentile believers were abusing grace, which is an affront against what? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Grace must not be thought of as a license to remain in our sin. Interestingly enough, James is clarifying this almost immediately after Peter had already affirmed what? The absolute freeness of grace in verse 11, which we saw last week. We are saved by both the sovereignty of God and the absolute free and abundant grace of God without any price, any merit on our part. And yet the free nature of grace does not cancel the need for obedience. Forsake your former ways, says James. Is he denying grace? No. This is precisely the call of grace. Forsake your former ways. This really matters. Now, let me see if I can illustrate the relevancy of this point by bringing to your attention something we received in the mail some time ago at our house. It was an advertisement for a church or from a church in which they were promoting a, an upcoming sermon series. The church shall remain nameless. It wasn't GCC. <laughs> okay, I can guarantee you that. Now, nothing wrong with promoting a series of sermons. In fact, this only shows that that church clearly has a desire to connect with the community, which is something I can certainly appreciate. So please understand that I'm not seeking to be unnecessarily critical of this church at this point. But in their desire to connect, in fact, I remember my wife handed it to me and, and I read it and then she said, I'm going to throw it away. And I said, no, 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 hold, hold, hold it, hold it, hold it. There's some material here. So here's, here's what I found out. In their desire to connect with the community, I believe they mishandled an important truth, even if unintentionally. Listen to what they said, and I quote, If you are looking for the perfect church or perfect people, keep looking. You won't find them here. We are a church of imperfect people, rough around the edges, and about as real and ordinary as you will find, end quote. Uh, before you stone me, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Isn't it true that we're all imperfect people, at times rough around the edges, real and ordinary? Yes. Amen. I have no problem with that. I do have a problem with giving the impression that grace is a license to remain comfortably where you are. 
In other words, we should never use our remaining sin or rough edges as a badge of honor or a token of humility. You know what that is? That is false humility. Long time ago, someone engaged in looking at pornography once told me, I'm beginning to think that God is not giving me victory over this sin in order to keep me humble. It's been over 10 years, so I don't remember what I said. But if that were to happen again, I would probably answer, I'm beginning to think you are abusing God's grace as an excuse to remain in your sin and give yourself a false sense of humility that actually denies grace. You see, grace is free. It's abundant. It's divine. But it's not divine permission for us to glory in our rough edges and parade them as a badge of humility. To glory in our weakness, as Paul did, is not the same as to glory in our remaining sin. Grace is divine power to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as we acknowledge our rough edges and our remaining sin, we must also confess them and mortify them. So yes, grace is free in Christ Jesus, but it transforms. So James could tell the Gentiles in Antioch to stop living as pagans even after Peter had affirmed the absolute freeness of divine grace, the Christian life which is created, it is empowered, and it is sustained by grace alone involves the ongoing mortification of sin, not the glorification of it. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that this was the actual intention of this particular church. I'm not seeking to put words in their advertisement, but we must be careful with the law of unintended consequences. James took this opportunity as the perfect example to issue this critical clarification. Grace leads to holiness. Grace transforms. Grace is not a license to remain in our sin, but the power to mortify our sin. And so James concludes, don't think you can abuse grace. Whatever pagan practices you were formerly engaged in, confess them and forsake them. Why? Because your heart have been cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. And all of this leads us to the final blessing a type of synthesis of everything. Here's the final and fifth blessing. A definitive conclusion was reached. A definitive conclusion was reached. What is the conclusion? Unity is of the essence. Unity matters. It does matter. Here's the last thing the Gentiles need to understand. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace means removing the offense, not the offense of the gospel, but that which stands as a barrier to fellowship. So we must remove the offense of pagan rituals, not only because grace transforms, but also because unity is of the essence. The controversy was an affront against the church of God. Let me draw your attention to verse 21. Notice what James does in that verse. He gives the reason why the Gentiles should seek to submit themselves to this ruling. They should abstain from things polluted by idols and from what has been strangled, and from blood, and sexual immorality, because, verse 21, 
from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So the judgment of James is therefore that the Gentiles should give up certain things, not only for the sake of transforming grace, but also for the sake of the gospel fellowship with their new family in Christ, that is, with the Jews. Remove the offense, says James, for the sake of unity. Don't live and act in ways that your Jewish brothers will deem highly, highly offensive. Unity in the gospel is of the essence. Now, how does everything end? The council ends with a consensus that Peter and James were speaking the truth. And so, they, take, they write a letter in which they recorded their resolution to the controversy. Consequently, they chose Paul and Barnabas again, along with a man named Judas, of whom we know very little, and Silas, who will soon become a partner of Paul in his secondary missionary journey. And the church gave them in Jerusalem, they gave those men the task of taking the letter back to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem to Antioch. So here is how the letter turned out, verses 23 through 29. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, they took the letter, and the Gentiles, the Bible says, they rejoiced because of its encouragement in verse 31. Afterward, the Bible says that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch preaching the word, verse 35. Hence, the controversy is brought to an end. So what do we learn from all this. What's the relevancy of this first century controversy in Jerusalem for us living in the 21st century America? There are endless lessons that we could gather. I'll, I'll just give you four. The first one is simple, straightforward, scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer are essential to the health of the church. And I say that comprehensively, but also individually. You can apply this to yourself. Notice two things with me. In verses 16 and 17, James went straight back to Old Testament prophecy and all apostles and elders, what did they do? They submitted to it. They submitted to it, which means they were operating always under authority, just like we should. We are always under authority. We are never autonomous. We're always under authority. And then in verse 28, notice who is involved in all this. The Holy Spirit was the one leading them, which means they were bathing themselves in prayer. That's how the early church functioned, always under authority, constantly bathed in prayer. 
These are the two practices of the early church that we cannot afford to be without. Here's the second lesson. Here's the second lesson. And probably the central one that we learn from Acts 15. The gospel is the solution. The gospel is the solution to all our spiritual woes. Did you notice what's going on here in Acts 15? Whether you suffer from legalism, as the Jews did, or paganism, as the Gentiles did, we all need one and the same what? Gospel. Whether you're a legalistic Jew or a pagan Gentile, the solution is one and the same, one gospel. The Jews needed to forsake legalism for the sake of grace. The Gentiles needed to forsake paganism also for the sake of grace. Grace, listen, grace saves us from our sins, which means we can forsake our legalism. At the same time, grace saves us unto God, which means we can forsake our paganism and idolatry. Now, speaking of which, let me make a quick note on the issue of paganism. We may mention this again next week as we dive into Proverbs 2. Uh, I don't know yet, but uh, let me just make a mention of the issue of paganism. James mentioned sexual immorality in verse 20. The reason behind that is simply that the Gentile world, which for thousands of years was in complete darkness, literally void of the gospel, was plagued with many, many vices. Chief among them was sexual immorality. One writer said, quote, orgies, cannibalism, demon invocation, and perversion were all marks of ancient pagan religion. It was from these practices that the Gentiles were saved by the power of Jesus and his gospel. Now, I say all that simply to say and offer a strong word of warning, and this is because of love. We live in a highly, 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 did I, did I, am I making my point? Highly sexualized world manifested in many different forms. But please know this, the overt sexualization of our society through the unashamed promotion of sexual promiscuity, gender fluidity, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, pornography, etc., indicates beyond a shadow of a doubt that paganism is not a bygone era of less sophisticated people. Not at all. Paganism is alive and well even amongst us. When a person engages in any form of sexual immorality, please listen to this, he or she is entering a very, very dark world. Sexual immorality has always been at the very center of idolatrous worship. The worship of idols. False gods, which are nothing but demons, have always deceived and manipulated people through disordered sexuality. 
This was Paul's world in the first century. It was blatantly pagan, therefore blatantly idolatrous, and filled with sexual immorality. But immorality, thank God, is not the end. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And I just realized it's only 11.33. We have plenty of time. I was worried at some point. I'm not worried anymore. Now you are worried, right? Some of you are like, no, he's just joking, right? Isn't he joking? It's not going to be that long, right? Well, who knows? Who knows? Oh, immorality is not the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? First of all, Paul states that as a statement of fact. As a statement of fact. Don't play with sexual immorality. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is no joke. It is no joke. The problem is that a lot of people read this and they think, well, I'm probably the exception. Why? Well, because I do have a little concept of grace here and there. Be very careful. But then verse 11 brings us all the hope in the world. And such were some of you. Did you hear that? Is that present tense? It's past. Past tense. And such were some of you. But, but you were washed. Again, statement of fact. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, thanks be to God who gives us the victory over paganism through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pagans come out of their paganism because Jesus came to save sinners. Notice, this was a way of life. This wasn't something they did once in a while. This was the way of life. They were, they saw themselves as sexually immoral. But Paul says, you were no longer. So if you, if you are, the Puritans always said, the point of a message is to make it personal. So I want to make it personal. If you are living in that world of darkness, I have two messages for you. First, be quick to forsake it. Forsake it. Forsake it. You are playing with fire. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 27 asks, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That's a rhetorical question. Sexual immorality is, is self-destruction. Forsake it. Second, Christ Jesus died 
on the cross to buy your freedom, both from sin and unto God. So what is your call? Come to Christ. Believe in him. And remember that you are no longer identified as a sinner. You are a saint of God. You belong to him. And his blood has covered your sin. The third point to remember, consider this, and these are going are gonna to be a little shorter, so let me see. Actually, I'm checking my notes, and that's not true. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Number three, the unsettling of the mind. The unsettling of the mind begins with a corrupted gospel. Verse 24, what do we read? Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds. In other words, you cannot live a life of fortitude and stability, ready to contend for the faith without knowing first where you stand in relation to God. This is the first order of business. And the only way to know whether, where you stand in relation to God is not primarily by looking to your inner feelings, but by looking to Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Now, I do believe in the need for introspection at times. After all, we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The Bible has much to say about that. But we should never grant our introspection, introspection final authority over our lives. In other words, our minds must be settled upon the finished work of Christ and the objectivity of his word, not our daily moods, the cultural trends, or popular narratives. Make sure the gospel of grace is settled in your mind and in your heart. And fourth and final, while not contentious, we must contend for the faith. While not contentious, we must contend for the faith. We must not be people who are simply looking for a fight. And that used to be me, by the way. Uh, there was a time in which I, I just, I kind of enjoyed it for some reason. Have you heard of the Calvinistic cage stage? It's a real thing. And it's dangerous. I literally felt everyone around me was wrong in fundamental levels, except me. Hopefully, I'm over, mostly. The Lord is working with me still. We should not be people seeking to die on every hill. That's to be contentious, and we must not be contentious. However, we must be willing to engage in the defense of biblical faith out of love for the God of truth and the souls of men. And brothers and sisters, even though we don't go out looking for controversy, it is clear by now that controversy has come looking for us. Many issues are knocking at our door. It is as though the world is now asking, what say you, Christians? There's a reason for that, and it is this. As long as we live in this world, and as long as Satan is active, attacks on the truth will continue. Darkness hates the light, and if darkness can find any way to dim the brightness of the light, it will make a move. So I will finish with this brief comment. One such move from the kingdom of darkness is a theory known as the social contract. As the name implies, the social contract seeks to teach 
that the critical and the only needed justification for any rule or any principle to operate successfully in any society is the collective agreement of the majority. The social contract is, in essence, the rule of the majority. It asks, what do the people want and how do people think? What is the majority consensus? I mentioned the social contract to end our time because it is a very effective tool of worldly intimidation. After all, if the majority around us seems to agree with the new ideas regarding marriage, sexuality, abortion, gender, etc., who are we to stand in the way, right? Wrong. Wrong. We are people under authority. The authority of Jesus the Lord. And we are not ruled by majority vote, but by Jesus and his word. We don't make up the rules. Thus, this is the only source of authority we, that can bind our conscience. We are not to be ruled or intimidated by conventional agreements or culturally accepted norms. We are the people of the book because we are the people of the Lord. And the only way for any Christian individually and the church corporately to survive the onslaught of false narratives that are pushed all through society by the mob mentality is by living life under authority. Or as the apostles did, Coram Deo before the face or in the presence of God. The apostles and the elders in Acts 15, at no point did they ever ask, in this heated controversy, how do we keep everyone happy? Not at all. In fact, their response was a rebuke to both Jews and Gentiles. The only question in their minds was this, what pleases God? And that's the question we must concern ourselves about. The only question is what pleases God? And so whether we are speaking of gender, sexuality, abortion, marriage, politics, education, worship, salvation, church polity, or whatever else, our duty as Christians is always to return to the question of questions. What pleases the Lord? All the consequences belong to Him. So let us be faithful as we walk by faith even in the midst of this darkness because Jesus is Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder. I pray, Father, that through the work of your Spirit, you will take what has been said, even with all the shortcomings of, of human communication. I know your word is not liable to any shortcomings, for your word is perfect. So I ultimately don't trust in myself, I trust in you, and I trust that you will take the word and apply it to our hearts. Help us to seek to be people of the book, because we are your people. And may Christ be known amongst ourselves and among the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name.